Podcast family, we are recording this on the first day of March 2024. So welcome to March. And in this episode, we're going to highlight a publication that came out on the first day of March. That's right. came out today on March the 1st, 2024 in the Green Journal. And I have a special uh, affection for this publication because it is right here out of our home state, out of the historic hospital UTMB in Galveston. That was the first medical school in the state. It is fantastic. It's got fantastic leadership, uh, including uh, George Sod, of course. And so we're going to highlight a publication, again, coming out ahead of print, official today on March the 1st, 2024, and it has to do with labor induction. Okay, now we all get patients for labor induction, especially since the ARRIVE trial was published, and you get the same angst that I do, I'm sure, when that nulligravid patient comes in and she is like one centimeter, 20% effaced or less, and the baby is like still by her tonsils. And you're like, okay. So the question that you have, just like I do, is what is the best induction method here that's going to get her delivery. And I'm going to tell you what the best option is. No, I'm not. Because we don't have a best option. If we had a best option, we would use only that. And we will call that option A. The truth is we have option A, B, A plus B, A plus B, sometimes C, D, and maybe sometimes E. The point is, we've got a lot of ways to induce. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, Chapa. No, we don't. We got two types. We got pharmacological and we have mechanical. Touche. But wait a minute. In the pharmacological, we have 25 or 50 micrograms. We have vaginal, oral, or sublingual. Some people even use a buckle. So there's a lot of options there. On the mechanical side, we have a Foley or single balloon or a double balloon. We have with traction or without traction. If it's a single balloon, we have 30 mLs, 60 mLs, or 80 mLs. Uh-huh. And then you've got the other option of combining to do using either a mechanical method with misoprostol or a mechanical method with Pitocin. You see, A option, B option, C A plus B, we have all these different options. And so the question is, which one works the best? Can't tell you, but I'm going to give you my best clinical application of the data as we get to the end of the episode, all right? Uh, And in a way that I think makes the most sense. Wow, there's a lot to cover here, guys. And we haven't even gotten into the title of this publication. This new publication that got released today on March the 1st, 2024 is Applying Tension to the Transcervical Foley Balloon and delivery times in term nulliparous women undergoing induction of labor. This is an RCT, okay? So let's get this off right right at the beginning. This is a single balloon catheter. It's a traditional Foley. Now tell you what that MLs of, dis, of, of distension included, because that's a big question. And this was applying tension just by taping it down to the leg with a little bit of force or just letting it hang loose. Okay. Now we've got so much to cover here, guys. Like, is it better to use a double balloon catheter like the Cook catheter? Is it better to use a single? Is it better to use tension or no tension, which we're going to answer. And that's our focus here. And there's so much that we've come to learn about this, like the ability in a low risk patient, meaning uh, no fetal heart rate issues, no poly, no oligohydramnios, no preeclampsia, no growth restriction, obviously no low line previa, uh, low line placenta rather. Uh, there's an option to place this, whether it's single or double, because the data has shown safety in both, and send them home. 
send them home with instructions and come back in 12 hours. That's another way to handle this. But that may be a whole other podcast, although we'll touch on this in this episode. Yes, you can very safely do balloon catheter induction, cervical ripening, either with a single balloon or double balloon as an outpatient. That is very well established as long as you have a very detailed protocol, which includes an NST before, NST after, making sure they meet criteria. They have to be at least 36 weeks uh, and six days, preferably 37, um, if there's an an indication for early term delivery. And we know that this works. Oh, and the baby obviously has to be cephalic, right? Those are all the routine things. Um, now, if a patient has a previous C-section, that's a little a, a little unclear. People, I, I would not send that patient home. I would keep her in-house uh, for the obvious risks. But excluding that, we know that outpatient balloon catheter cervical ripening is very safe. But that's not really our, our main focus here. It is. Does applying tension to the Foley increase uh, success? That's where we're going here. Man, so much to talk about because if your first thought is, well, okay, just tell me, does applying tension work or not? Well, no, it's deeper than that because in this publication, for example, they used 60 ml balloon, a 60 ml balloon. Okay, well, is that any better than a 30 ml balloon? And why did they not use an 80 ml balloon? What's the data for that? Does size really matter here? What do women really think about size? Does size matter to a woman at all? And come to think of it, what is the average size? What is wrong with you, man? (laughs) Michael just said, I can't believe you said, does size matter? Um, What's wrong with you? I'm talking about balloon size, you weirdo. So balloon size, the the size of the Foley. Now, oh my gosh, you see, how how do we derail when we're, we're just in the intro? We just started this thing. The size of the balloon, because that's one of the catches here, guys. If you're ever asked, hey, does Foley balloon catheter help with induction? For sure. That's part of a mechanical method of cervical ripening. The question is, well, what size? Does size matter? Is it 30 ml, 60 ml, 80 mLs? And the answer is yes. No, yes to what? Yes, exactly. Because there's data all over the place for this. And I'm going to give you that in this episode. Wow, lots to unpack here, right? So in this episode, we're going to cover, once again, a new publication that came out today from UTMB, and we're going to explain one sub-analysis that was not done in this publication, and I wish they had, because that would have been super helpful. It's right there in plain text. We did not look at this particular sub-analysis, this particular interaction. Oh, I wish they had. All right, nonetheless, we're going to cover, does traction on the Foley bulb with the 60 ml balloon, does traction help over no traction for cervical ripening? Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. What a historic place. UTMB is just phenomenal. And that original building, the old red building, that was the only building that was there when UTMB opened back in 1891. That old red building, I mean, it's just, even today, I mean, it just looks like it was built yesterday. It's so well-preserved. It's phenomenal. Uh, I, I just, I have great admiration for UTMB. 
except for the darn hurricanes that come through Galveston. And, and look what it start. Look what it did. I mean, it started out with, I'm looking at the history of UTMB right now, 23 students, 13 faculty members. How about that? How about a student-to-teacher ratio of one to two? Is, is that incredible or what? One faculty basically for every two students. 23 students, 13 faculty members. That's all it was. That was the first medical school in the state of Texas. And great research comes out even to this day, just like this publication that we're talking about here in the Green Journal that came out today on March the 1st, 2024. So here, let me just set the, the, the premise, even though we already did a little bit of that in the intro. We got a lot of inductions going on. We hope this thing works, okay? But one of the difficulties in talking about cervical ripening agents and whether they, quote, work or not, end quote, uh, has to do with what is our definition of success? Is it the, the avoidance of other uterotonic agents? Like, wow, this thing just puts you in a labor by itself, so independent uh, function. Is it delivery within 12 hours? Is it delivery within 24 hours? Is it a spontaneous vaginal birth? Is it reduction in C-section? And the answer is Yes, all of those are valid, but you see how this is why the data is super confusing, and we're going to go through all of it. We're going to go through what does the data show on on mechanical dilation, single compared to double balloon. What is the data on single balloon and different sizes of that balloon, 30, 60, or 80 mLs? What is the data of balloon alone or combined with another agent, typically misoprostol? Because even though you can give Pitocin, um, the idea is, well, you're avoiding Pitocin because they're likely not cervical ripened. So you would continue to use an additional cervical ripening agent. So there is data on balloon catheters uh, either alone or in combination with Mr. Prostol. And we're going to touch on that as well. Uh, And so we're going to try to go through all of this data. And I told you at the end, I was going to tell you the most applicable way to pick the best option. And and the short answer is there is not one best option. It depends on what the patient is doing. Uh, and for most of the data, this has looked at, even though it's been studied in both nulliparous and multiparous patients, the cleanest slate is taking away obstetrical history and looking at nulligravida patients, right? Because those are the trickiest ones because they've never labored. You don't know what's going on. So you want them to be uh, fresh uh, in the labor history course. Okay, so the, most of the, the, the value has to do with the nulliparous patient population, just like this RCT was done. Okay, so now that we've laid out that background, again, this title has to do with Foley use, and it's not a double balloon, it's not a cook, it's a regular Foley, where they instilled up to 60 mLs of saline. Okay, so it's a 60 mL fill, and then some of those patients were under traction, and traction was just where they pulled it and taped it to the patient's leg or just let it dangle free, okay? These were all nullips, and this was a cluster trial. In other words, for one week, everyone's going to have tension. The next week, everyone's going to dangle. The next week, so the, 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 it's the randomization, the patient selection are clustered in time interval. That's called a clustered randomized trial, okay? Again, out of UT um, uh, Medical Branch in Galveston. So, they wanted to find out as a primary outcome, what was the time from the initial Foley balloon insertion until ultimate delivery, okay? So you got all these different ways of looking at this thing, uh, time from insertion to delivery, time from insertion to a favorable cervix, time from insertion of the balloon 
to the balloon falling out. You have all these different ways that have been reported in all the different literature. But in this case, it's time from initial Foley balloon until delivery. Secondary outcomes, things that they looked on in addition to that, were cesarean delivery rates, peripartum infection, and NICU admissions. Okay? Perfect. They did this with a power calculation to reach 80%. And of course, using the significance value of a 0.05 two-tailed alpha. So very well designed study. And because, I mean, I I trust anything that uh, um, George Saw does, just like Vincenzo Berghella. I'm going to talk about one of his publications here in just a minute. Uh, These are just his, these are just pioneers in the field. And if they got their name on it, you can pretty much guarantee it's going to be a, a good stuff, okay? So I'm very proud of, of this institution and, and of this uh, research. All right, so short of it is, okay, we're going to do this in labor and delivery. Everybody agree. Nurses are on board. Physicians on board. Perfect. And then we're going to take one week at a time, and everyone's going to have trenchant, tension, another week at a time, and then a no tension. A total of 279 term nulliparous patients were included. These were all inpatients. Okay, we'll talk about outpatient in a minute, which is yet another way to do this is if you can have a single or a double balloon catheter, do you keep them in? Or if they meet certain criteria, like we talked about in the intro, send them home as an outpatient. And I've already spoiled that because absolutely you can send them home as an outpatient. Just give them instructions. Come back if it falls out. Come back if you have all this water leaking out of your vagina. In other words, if you think you ruptured your bag. Come back with regular contractions. Come back if the baby is not moving as much. Come back if you have signs or symptoms of infection. Those are typically the warning signs of when a patient should come back with a, a transcervical uh, balloon, whether single or double, for outpatient use. Okay, and that's very well published. And I'll touch on that in this episode, uh, unless this becomes like an hour long, which I do not want this to be. So March 1st, 2024, Green Journal, UTMB. Do we put tension on it or not? It makes total sense, right? I mean, pull on that sucker so you can really irritate the internal cervical loss, get a lot more uh, continuous membrane stripping. And then you would think that would lead to uh, better results because maybe you're going to cause not just that pressure on the cervix to physically dilate, but it's the uh, neuroendocrine response, which is both a Ferguson reflex as well as neuroendocrine release that's going to help dilate the cervix. It's mainly driven by prostaglandins. That's the idea between balloon catheters. Remember, though, that a Foley is typically Lasix or a a non-Lasix. Lasix. Did I say Lasix? Good God almighty. And it's typically latex. or non-latex if they have a latex allergy, whereas the Cook cervical balloon, the double balloon catheter, which was not used in this case, uh, is typically um, silicone. It's a silicone base, so it's a lot more pliable, and that uses 80 mLs per balloon. Uh, the, the Foley here was a 60 mL. Now, you can do a 30, you can do a 50, you can uh, go up to 60, you can go up to 80 mLs based on the French uh, style of Foley that you use. In this case, to keep it standard, it was using a 60 ml fill. Okay, so it's a, everyone had to play the same game. It was 60 ml saline inflated balloon at time of placement. Now, how they placed it, that was left up to the provider. They could do it under direct visualization. They can do it manually, which I find very difficult to do uh, unless they're like, you know, two and a half, three centimeters, which at which point you're like, well, damn, aren't they favorable in and of themselves right there? But nonetheless, I like to feed it in and make sure that I'm in so I don't inflate uh, in the vagina. So this is, that was the plan, right? Per week, 
tension or no tension. Now, here's the catch. After they placed this in, it was usual care as providers elected, meaning that some uh, were allowed to have concomitant uh, pharmacological methods. So some said, hey, you know what you do? You guys don't want, I just randomize either tension or no tension. And then you can either use pharmacological uh, concomitant ripening with prostaglandins or not. You do what you would typically do. And if it failed after 12 hours, then they either had a, another one inserted or they used prostaglandin agents first and then had already inserted. But this was looking at the initial attempt. Okay. Now, do you all see that as a big flag here? Because while they they report and they give you the total numbers of those who had the Foley balloon placed uh, and used concomitant misoprostol or concomitant oxytocin, and there were no statistically significant differences between the two groups. So let me just tell you these numbers real quick. In those who had the Foley balloon uh, between tension and no tension, uh, and who had Pitocin being used as well, 11% had oxytocin at the same time in the tension group uh, versus 8% in the no tension group. That was not statistically significant, all right? So 11 in the tension, uh, 8% basically in the no tension uh, for oxytocin in addition to Foley. Some had pharmacological uh, agents like misoprostol. That was 9% in the tension group. It was 17% in the no tension group. Still, p-value was not statistically significant, okay? So, they tell you how many had balloon by itself, how many had balloon with pit, how many had balloon with cytotec. Good. The catch is that that's, I'm just going to tell you right now, that's the one sub-analysis that was not included, wouldn't that be a huge thing to figure out? So they just looked at, hey, at time from Foley, tension or no tension, that's what we're looking for. Did that change time to delivery? That's it. None of the other stuff, although they report these had pit at the same time versus this is Cytotec. And it's very clear in their limitations that, quote, we did not examine the effects of other variations of Foley balloon use, like the type of balloon, the method of placement, meaning blind or uh, visual, here it is, or the use of concomitant ripening agents, which may influence the effectiveness of the method used, end quote. Well, of course it would. So th that's a huge sub-analysis that was not looked at. We will touch on that in a little bit. Should you just use the balloon by itself uh, or with an additional agent? Now, the majority of people, as we already stated, would use in clinical practice Cytotec because Pitocin, by definition, you're not ripe, so likely you may not have pit receptors, even though it's totally okay to use pitocin with a balloon. I want to make that very clear. You can use pit with the balloon, single or uh, double balloon style. It's no problem with that. However, most of the data has looked at single or double balloon with the use of misoprostol because by definition, those are both ripening and you're trying to ripen the cervix. All right, unless there's a contraindication, of course, to misoprostol, like in a TOLAC, then that's the one catch where you would likely go to the oxytocin group. But in this publication from UTMB, they did not do that sub-analysis. So we don't know, hey, even though the results were this, which we're going to tell you in a minute with tension or no tension, would it have changed uh, in the group that had used the balloon with Cytotec, or would it have changed with the balloon with Pitocin? Okay, so if you can't figure it out, the way I'm laying this out is that, let me just cut to the chase here, 
no big difference. Tension or no tension didn't make a big difference clinically or statistically. And those that are randomized to having a little bit of tension, pulling it down onto the cervix or those letting it hang free, it didn't matter. The times were not drastically different as a whole. So even though they report this is the amount with pit, this is the amount with Cytotec, this is the amount where the balloon was losing alone, those were not teased out in terms of final results. So that's a huge, huge limitation here that I wish they would have looked at in a little bit more detail. If your question is, or it should be, well, why would you not look at that sub-analysis? Oh, I guarantee you they're going to do that uh, because you never want to publish everything at once. So this gives the exact foundation and opens the door for another publication. Man, it's all about getting those publications out. So why would you put everything in one paper? Like, hey, we can take a look at that later. But as a total group, no real difference. Here's their synopsis conclusion. Quote, we found no significant difference in delivery times between the tension and the no tension groups. Furthermore, our secondary outcomes, including change in Bishop score, incidence of primary cesarean delivery, peripartum infection, and NICU outcomes was not significantly different between the two groups. So it didn't do anything. So you can do tension if you want to. You don't have to. It's not, That's your preference. Let's call it what it is. According to this publication and others, that's a preference issue. It's not an efficacy issue. And they're also very clear here. Hey, we're not the only ones to say this. We're not going against the stream here or going against the grain because they do mention a systematic review and a meta-analysis that took a look at four RCTs. It had 790 singleton pregnancies who looked at this exact thing, traction to the Foley uh, or no traction. And they concluded, yeah, it really doesn't have any change in outcome uh, and there was no difference in the probability of cesarean delivery. So, and that's in their uh, in their discussion. That meta-analysis was from the gray journal, MFM, the pink journal, so AJOG MFM, from 2022. That is the Schoen uh, and Bergella meta-analysis. The title, you would guess, Traction versus No Traction in Foley Catheter Use for Induction of Labor Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials. Okay, so what do we know? So in this publication, there was no significant difference in the primary outcome, which was insertion to delivery, whether you do tension or no tension using a 60 ml Foley balloon. Okay, so now let's now that we've settled that, that's a new publication. Okay, just nice and quick and to the point, short and sweet. But there's other questions here that should come to mind. All right, the first thing is they used a 60 ml balloon. Okay, what would have happened if they used an 80 ml balloon? Does that matter? Oh, you, you see how you can get into all these rabbit trails and they are all valid. Now, remember, the, the big limitation here is it wasn't just the balloon. Traction versus no traction. That would have been nice and clean. However, some had pit, some had side attack. But overall, as a group, as a big bucket, things washed out, things balanced each other out. So there was no difference between the big buckets. And I love what they did because they did the intent to treat analysis and per protocol. That's the, that's the extremely transparent, very scientific and fair way to report things. So that's awesome. That's the way that they should have done it. And they did it. Fantastic. But the question is, um, well, what would have happened if it was a different volume of balloon? Well, that's been looked at as well. And as you would guess, the results are kind of all over the place there also. 
Let's go back to January 2018 at a poster that was presented at SMFM and then published in the Gray Journal, AJOG. So remember, this is a poster presentation, not a full peer-reviewed manuscript, but the data here is is nothing unique because others have shown very similar things, okay? This was poster number 371, and the title is Increased Foley Catheter Balloon Volume for Induction of Labor, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Exactly what we're talking about. So this was published by Vincenzo Vergella. Remember, we've just talked about him in that other systematic review versus tension or no tension. So same folks, including Schoen. So it's the same authors here. But in January of 2018, remember, this is the the poster. And I'm, the reason I'm stressing this is because these same authors then kicked that over into a publication with, with some twists, with some alterations, some adjustments that found the same thing. So first, the poster presentation from January 2018, this was a systematic review of randomized trials and the number of trials that are included weren't very much. I mean, it's just it's hard to find this data in good RCTs. So this was five RCTs. This included 1,244 singleton pregnancies, cephalic presentation at term. All right. Now, listen to this This is why I'm stressing this super important. January 2018. This was a poster. Same authors are now going to kick this over into April 2018, three months later with their peer reviewed publication that comes out in ACTA, Obstetrics and Gynecology Scandinavia. Okay, a great journal. But in this manuscript where they did the same thing, they did another systematic review and meta analysis of RCTs. They now used seven studies for inclusion. Did I tell you medicine moves faster or what? <laughs> so I tell you guys, right, one poster, hey, we have five RCTs, same authors, five RCTs, let's see volume makes a difference here for a single balloon uh, induction. And then three months later, they publish a, a systematic review, meta-analysis of seven RCTs. So that's why I said kind of similar concept, but a little different because it's different data. But starting with 2018, in in the the poster that was presented at SMFM, let me just give it to you, just right, just, just end this here because we've got lots to cover. Short of it is, hey, using a balloon over 30 mLs, quote, did not reduce total time to delivery, end quote. See, now that goes against the grain, right? Because, I mean, cook balloon, my goodness, you have 80 mLs, here you have 30. Wouldn't it make, it just makes sense that more volume has more membrane stripping, more pressure onto the cervix, um, more uh, uh, reflex of, of pressure activation. It, it just makes sense. But according to this January 2018 poster, yeah, it really didn't do a lot. Now, when you would talk about the April publication from the same authors that used seven RCTs, so two other RCTs that were not included in this poster, they found, um, well, it actually does increase the time to delivery. It does. But it only does it by about two hours. So clinically and statistically, it made no difference. So you see, it depends on how you look at things. Because three months later in this April 2018 publication, let me tell you what they found there. So remember, January, start of the year, no, it doesn't do anything. Using more than 30 mLs in, in a single balloon catheter did not change outcomes. However, three months later, same authors, including, again, this is uh, uh, Vincenzo Berguela, they found, quote, balloon volumes larger than 30 mLs during Foley catheter induction reduce total time to delivery. Like, well, wait a minute. 
I thought you said they didn't. No, no, no. They do by about two hours. So this is a question. Two hours. Okay, two hours is two hours. I mean, is that clinically meaningful? Well, to me, it is. If you're the patient in labor, it totally is. But what about statistics? Well, let's let's make this, make this very clear here. In the poster presentation from January 2018, quote, balloon volumes larger than 30 mLs during Foley catheter induction did not reduce total time to delivery. And there was no significant differences in any of their secondary outcomes. All right. Now, they they looked at 30 mLs, 60 mLs and 80 mLs. They're like, eh, it didn't really do very much. The difference between that and this publication from April 2018 is this. First, remember, these are two different data sets, right? So five trials, then seven trials. And it's how you look at the data. So does it make an overall difference? Probably not. Two hours is considered non-significant when you take a look from induction to overall delivery uh, in, in both groups. And this included multi-paris and nulliparis women. So let me read you the results directly because we got to move on. All right. So short of it is, do larger, does larger volumes matter? Um, maybe. That's the take-home message. So if the patient, because there's no really no difference in pain or acceptability, why not use a larger balloon? Here's the results exactly from this April 2018 publication. Quote, seven randomized trials, including 1,432 singleton gestations, were included in the systematic review. Women randomized to larger volumes of balloon had a significantly shorter time from induction to delivery. That mean difference was 1.97 hours. Okay. There was, no, there was also no difference between cesarean section groups. Great. But here it is. A larger balloon volume was associated with a non-significant decrease in time from induction to delivery in multips and nulliparous women. In other words, yes, it, it can decrease the time, but is it really statistically significant? Does it really make that much clinical difference in the big scheme of it? Probably not. So it's very confusing, but it's really not if you step away and take a look. Larger balloon volume, based on some of the data that's kind of conflicting, doesn't hurt and can possibly help. So that's the first thing. We, talk, we said we're going to talk about size of the balloon, and we already did that if we're using a single balloon uh, mechanical method. But the other question is, is there a difference in terms of success if that single balloon is used with a different agent? And we're going to talk about that next. Yes, I am a fan of larger volume in the balloon. I think it does something. Remember, our whole motto here is, can it help? Yes. And can it hurt? Likely no. So I think 80 mLs is the way to go, which is still less than the double balloon catheter with Cook, which is 80 mLs per balloon. But the next question is, all right, I get that. Should we be combining this with another agent? Typically, most of the data is with misoprostol uh, compared to misoprostol by itself. All right. And there's lots of data here and it is very favorable. I want to give just two examples because most of the data starts to repeat with this. One is from uh, January of 2018 and then the other is from October of 2020. So we're going to lay out this data here. We already talked about the tension versus no tension. We touched on volume with a single balloon. Now briefly let's talk about misoprostol by itself or with a Foley balloon. Uh, as a single balloon or where it stands with a double balloon, okay? Short of it is, sure, why not? It seems to help. There was an RCT out of the Green Journal that was published in January of 2018. The title is Misoprostol with Foley Bulb Compared to Misoprostol Alone for Cervical Ripening. 
And as you would guess, it makes biological sense uh, that you're attacking it in different ways. And sure enough, cervical ripening using misoprostol in combination with the transcervical foley was an effective way, quote, to shorten the course of labor compared with misoprostol alone, end quote. So yes, I am a fan of this. I think it, it definitely has some advantages here. It was statistically significant. It helped. Uh, as long as there's no contraindication to misoprostol, that seems to work. Now remember, this was January 2018. Now let's fast forward uh, close to two years in the future. Now we're at 2020, October 2020, in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. This is a meta-analysis of RCTs of using misoprostol combined with either a single or double balloon versus misoprostol alone. Okay, so now it's not just the Foley, it's Foley uh, and Cook balloon. And as you would guess, sure enough, whether it's a single RZT or a meta-analysis, yeah, this showed, quote, the combined use of misoprostol and the cervical balloon reduced the intervention to delivery time interval. So it does work. So I'm a fan of using two agents as long as there's no contraindication and the patient knows the uh, the informed consent. So we have an, a single RCT from 2018 and a meta-analysis of RCTs from 2020 that show if you're going to combine it, fine. Uh, that seems to be okay, whether it's a single or a double balloon. Podcast family, as you know, I always try to present both sides of, of a debate of a topic of a subject because I never want to be uh, considered like uh, nitpicking the data. I, I try not to do that at all. We do a lot of work to do our due diligence to provide evidence-based recommendations. And in this case, th there is evidence to back this up. There is good data that the combination of misoprostol and cervical ripening mechanical methods, whether it's single or double balloon, uh, has legitimacy. And outside of those publications that we just covered, this was actually the the conclusion drawn from evidence-based practice, right? So that's a journal, evidence-based practice, and this was looked at and published April 2020. The title, as you would guess, exactly what we're talking about here is, is cervical ripening balloon used in conjunction with pharmacological cervical ripening both safe and effective than either method used alone? Okay, and so that's exactly what we're talking about. Is it safe and effective? And after taking a look at the RCTs and the available data, yes, the answer is there is data to back this up. Quote, adding a cervical ripening balloon to a misoprostol for induction of labor decreases median induction time in some studies up to five to six hours with equivalent safety outcomes compared to either method alone. End quote. Now you're like, well, wait a minute, where did you get this five to six hours? That's based on this review from evidence-based practice, April 2020. So just to be clear, I am a fan of combined therapies, as long as there's no contraindication to misoprostol. And if I do use misoprostol with this, I don't want to cause tachycystole. So I do not give 50. I only give 25 micrograms uh, every three or four hours based on tolerability. But I do believe that there is evidence here, guys, whether it's a single balloon or a double balloon to use this with pharmacological options and nothing wrong to use uh, oxytocin with it. But most of the data traditionally has looked at misoprostol. So again, April 2020 in evidence-based practice. Yes, the short answer is there is consistent evidence from randomized controlled trials that the two concomitant approaches not only is safe, but also is highly effective. 
Oh, wait, wait. Before I leave this topic, because I, I, I know we've been hovering on this for uh, for quite a bit now on the combined use of balloon catheter and misoprostol. But one thing that I have to state here is, and, and you should think, wait a minute, is he talking about oral misoprostol or vaginal? And the answer is both. Okay, there's data both ways that whether you use vaginal misoprostol in combination with a Foley catheter or whether you do it as low-dose oral adjuvant therapy, um, they, they both have data, all right? So the first question is, is there evidence to support misoprostol with uh, balloon dilation, single or double? The answer is yes. Yes, there is on both sides. And now, well, does that include vaginal or oral? Yes, there's data on both sides. So boom, no matter how you cut the, the cake here, there is evidence in support of misoprostol by either route, oral or vaginal, and with balloon uh, mechanical dilation, either single or double. Regarding this thing as to routes of administration of misoprostol, remember we talked about this in our 2020 review of the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. Remember that? That was one of the systematic reviews that we talked about. And that review did include different routes of administration of misoprostol. So let me just give you this synopsis before we finally leave this combined approach section, all right? Quote, the combined effect of the mechanical action of a single or double balloon along with oral or vaginal misoprostol on an unfavorable cervix reduces the intervention to delivery time and the number of uterine hyperstimulation and NICU admissions as compared to the use of misoprostol alone, end quote. How about that? So that's not a new publication. We already talked about that one from the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine. But yes, they did include, not only was it single or the double balloon, but included oral or vaginal. That's why their conclusion overall that we've already covered was that, yes, as a group, the combined use of misoprostol and the cervical balloon catheter reduces the time to delivery. So that's that. All right, pause for a minute. Let's pause. What have we covered so far? We've covered tension versus no tension with a single balloon. We've covered volume of a single balloon. Now we've just touched on misoprostol, either with a single balloon or with a double balloon. Guys, we're, we're making a lot of progress here. So now I want to talk about, well, should we be using a single balloon at all? What about a double balloon? Is, is, is a Foley any better or is it worse than using something like a Cook balloon? Okay. By the way, Cook is not a sponsor. Well, this has been looked at as well. There was a meta-analysis of studies done on October 2019 that was published in BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth. This is exactly the question that they had. Double versus single balloon catheters for labor induction and cervical ripening. So what they looked at was seven RCTs. It involved 1,159 women and the short of it is, um, sure. I mean, let's make it very easy. Both of them have a role. I can't, it's very unclear to find out if one is better than the other. And the reason is, is that there's so much heterogeneity in these, in these studies. And not only that, is that labor is super complicated, right? That's why if one worked better, guys, we would just have option A. And that's not the case. So if you're ever asked, what is better, a single or a double balloon? Um, Sure. Why not? 
it, it, because we don't know. There's no data. There's not one piece of evidence where it goes, this is clearly superior. There's trends. There's maybe it. Remember, as we always say here, it might could be better to use a double balloon catheter. Um, but it's, it, the truth is labor is super complicated. So according to this October 2019 meta-analysis looking at double versus single balloon, which one is better here? The short of it is um, they both kind of did okay. Quote, both kinds of balloon catheters have similar levels of efficacy, efficiency, safety, and patient satisfaction. However, single balloon, no question, hands down there, more cost effective. I mean, a Foley's like uh, $1.50. Seriously, it's super cheap. Cook balloon, not so much. Cook balloon is a lot more expensive. So I'm all for a Foley balloon catheter at 80 mLs. I have no problem with that, but I don't like to use it alone. I like to use it with Cytotec as long as there's no contraindication. Uh, I think that's fine. Now, you do have the option, that we, the last thing we're going to talk about here, now that we've covered tension versus no tension, size of a balloon for a single catheter, single compared to a double. Last thing is, is it okay to do this as an outpatient, whether it's single or double balloon catheter? And I'm going to give you that systematic review and meta-analysis that came out just almost exactly two years ago, February 2012, from the Green Journal, okay, Obstetrics and Gynecology. Man, we're making a lot of progress here. So let's give you this last study, the last reference, and then we'll call it a day. As our last piece of literature to review here, guys, um, we do have data, and it's pretty repetitive. It seems to be all in the same vein that in the appropriate patient, meaning low risk and not with the contraindications that we already discussed earlier, yeah, it's legit. Outpatient cervical ripening with balloon catheters totally works. February 2022 in the Green Journal reviewed this with a systematic review and meta-analysis. And it's not just a single balloon, it's not just a double. In the appropriately picked patient, it's totally fine. Quote, outpatient balloon cervical ripening in low-risk patients is associated with a decreased amount of time from admission to labor and delivery until delivery. Outpatient balloon cervical ripening is a safe alternative for low-risk patients and has the potential for significant benefits to patients and labor and delivery units. End quote. I'm a big fan of this. I, I don't think we do this enough. Uh, I think we hold up a lot of nursing care and a lot of beds with somebody who's sleeping in the night in labor and delivery. Uh, and I'm not against that. I'm not trying to be, you know, patient, not friendly. It's just, damn, you can go home and sleep in your own bed. I mean, you're going to be fine. You could be fine for 12 hours uh, as long as you know the risks and when to come back. It's totally okay. And this isn't the only systematic review that's looked at this. Outpatient cervical ripening with either a single or double balloon catheter in the low-risk patient totally legit. Podcast family, as we get ready to wrap this up, I told you at the beginning that I was going to tell you the best method for the patient to ripen the cervix. And as you can guess already, there is not one method. It depends on the patient's characteristics or preferences, inpatient versus outpatient, and that initial cervical exam. That Bishop score, if you're one centimeter, if you're super unfavorable, I believe that the data supports that combination low-dose misoprostol and either a single or double balloon catheter is totally fine for ripening and has the best results. If somebody has a little bit more favorable cervix but still under six on a Bishop score, then perhaps mechanical method alone would work. 
either a single balloon with a minimum of 60, hopefully 80 mLs, or a cooked balloon. It's all about giving patients realistic expectations. We should never give a cervical ripening agent and go, you're going to be delivered in 12 hours. Uh, really? Says who? Uh, there's no proof of that. We don't know when it's going to happen. So one of the reasons that all of these data pieces on cervical ripening and induction are so complicated is because labor is complicated. And do you call success vaginal delivery that's spontaneous, 12 hours from uh, initiation, within 24 hours, avoidance of C-section? And the answer is yes, we should look for all of those. And it all is how you cut the pie, which depends on how you look uh, at that particular uh, slice of the pie. I mean, it depends on what you're looking at. So beauty really is in the eye of the beholder. So many different ways to look at this. So what have we found out in this episode? Because we've covered a lot of stuff. It does not seem that tension is any better than no tension. It seems that larger volume of a single balloon uh, mechanical method of a cervical ripening seems to be best. Although it's, it's, it's not whoppingly greater, but it can't hurt and can only help. There's definitely data that all types of balloons, single or double balloon, help to some extent with labor induction. And there is safety data for both outpatient use and concomitant use with oxytocin or low-dose Cytotec. So what's the best option for cervical ripening? Yes, (laughs) because it depends on the patient, your preference, and whether it's inpatient or outpatient. All right, podcast family, let's take it home. My goodness, that's a lot of stuff. Remember that all of our episodes are fully referenced. And in this episode, we've covered, let me take a look here. We've covered seven pieces of literature, seven different publications, including the one from today, March the 1st, 2024. As always, this is on our reference page on our shared Google Doc. I publish, I publish, I I post that periodically, of course, in our Instagram and on our Facebook page. Don't forget that this exists for anybody who wants the references. And the title of this episode is Foley for uh, Cervical Ripening, Tension or No Tension, March 2024 Data. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.